0: If you would, again, uh, take out your Bibles, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we will today be reading uh, verse 35 through verse 51. John 1, starting in verse 35, again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The next day again John was standing with his t- with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said behold the lamb of god the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what are you seeking and they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers The flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, for uh, the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. We pray, O God, that you would till our hearts deeply, the soil of our hearts deeply, that your word may be implanted there, that we may be fruitful people, that you would cause us to bear much fruit, bushels, as it were. Help us to... Um, even as there's distractions and various things in our lives, we pray that those things may be put aside, that we may be able to hear You today. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, uh, You'll notice uh, that our passage opens with these words from John the Baptist, who says, See, look, behold the Lamb of God. And then it ends with these words of Jesus to Nathanael Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is it to see? Certainly we might speak of having physical eyesight. As I've gotten older, I've had to start using these reading glasses. You've probably noticed me using them a lot more recently. But this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, our physical eyesight. What is in view is not seeing with our physical eyes, but to see with spiritual eyes. To have eyes of faith, to apprehend the glories of the Son of God, who is God come in the flesh. When Saul, who is Paul, was given his commission from Christ in Acts on the road to Damascus, he was told that he would be a witness of things which he had seen. He was being sent to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. And Jesus said to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin in a place among those who are sanctified by faith. To see is to have your eyes opened to the truth to knowing Jesus Christ crucified and and resurrected for you, to know the only mediator between God and men who takes away our sin, has made full payment on our behalf to know Jesus Christ. And when you and I see and believe with eyes of faith, we also want to bear witness to To what we've seen, to what we understand, to to bring others to know the Savior. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he declared, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, though he had followers, he wanted those followers, he wanted all who could see or who was there, he wanted them to see. And as John was being questioned by the authorities concerning his baptism, you might remember this from last week, John recognized his own unworthiness in comparison to the glories of the Son of God. John understood his place was to point to the Messiah, to the Lamb of God. And so as we jump into our text today, we come to the day following that examination of John the Baptist. And On that day, John was standing with his two disciples. That is to say that these were men who were among his followers. And he was speaking to them when Jesus came walking by. Now John did what he knew must be done. He pointed these men toward the Messiah. He pointed and said... Behold the Lamb of God. So here's Jesus walking by, and he sees him, and he, he's pointing to him. Now this, this title, Lamb of God, is you know it's very familiar to us, right? We we're very familiar with the, the term Lamb to Lamb of God, but it may surprise you to know that the term only appears in two books of Scripture John's Gospel and Revelation. Now, both of these were written by the Apostle John. Now, as mentioned last time, this may have been a somewhat surprising designation for the Messiah, and yet it should not have been that surprising, nor would the reference have been unfamiliar to them. Any Jew would have understood what was being stated here. The Lamb has great significance in Old Testament sacrificial economy. Consider, first of all, Genesis chapter 22. Or Abraham was to take Isaac up on the mountain as an offering. And Isaac, remember, asks his father, Well, I see the wood. Where's the lamb? Where's the, where's the offering? Remember, Abraham responded, God will provide the lamb for himself for the burnt offering. And of course, we know that's exactly what God did. God provided the lamb or the ram that was stuck in the thicket. This phrase, the Lamb of God, also reminds us of the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, which provides procedure that people were to follow on that faithful night. Every household was to take a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, and to slaughter it. And they were to put that blood on the doorpost, and the lamb was to be roasted and eaten. And the, and the sign of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost ensured that the angel of death would pass over that household. And so, when John utters these words, the Lamb, behold the Lamb of God, he's pointing to some Old Testament imagery which was even then being fulfilled in the Son of God. Although the cross would come toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, already the expectation was being set for what Jesus would do. Jesus is the provided Lamb from God, taking our place, just as the Lamb had taken Isaac's place. He's the Lamb of God, as Jesus is the Paschal Lamb, sacrificed for the people. All those who are in Him are covered with His blood, or covered by His blood, and their, and their sins are passed over. And so when these two disciples of John hear him say these words, hey, look, the Lamb of God, they immediately understood, and they turn and begin to follow Jesus. Now you notice that they literally begin to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus sees them following him on the road, and he turns and asks them, what are you you seeking? What are you looking for? Now, as he often does, John here is using follow with two different meanings in mind. And John likes to do this. On the one hand, the disciples began to follow Jesus in the ordinary sort of way. You know, Jesus walking down the road, and they're walking behind him, following along. But in another way, they began to follow Jesus as a disciple. They began to hear his teaching. They began to walk in his ways. And so, when they're walking behind him, Jesus asks them, in essence, what do you want? Now this question makes sense in the narrative. Jesus is concerned to know what is on these men's minds. Why are you following me? But John, the evangelist, also wants us to reflect on a deeper question. The Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, wants these new disciples to consider what is it that they really want out of life? What are you seeking in life? That you're following me. What do you hope to gain in following Christ? Do you want to gain your own agenda? Or do you want His agenda for you? What are you seeking? If these men were seeking the forgiveness of sin, full and free, entrance into the kingdom of God, to to know God, to be known by God, then they had come to the right place. But if they were seeking their own kingdom, or perhaps they wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the present earthly kingdom, then they're not seeking the right things. What do you seek? Do you want the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ or do you want the kingdom of your own making? Do you want your own kingdom? Why are you following Jesus? John has a way of using these questions to make us ponder not only what's happening here in the text, but our own selves. What are we seeking? Well, the men respond first by calling him rabbi, which is teacher. The word literally means great one or master. This is a term uh, of honor of a student to his teacher. Now, John explains the term for the sake of his Gentile audience. And by calling him rabbi, they were giving proper honor to him. And so then they ask this question where are you staying? Where is your lodging place? Now you might wonder, why do they want to know? Why do they respond with this question to know where Jesus was living? Why do they ask this question? But the purpose of this question was to seek out a more private place, to have an extended conversation with him. Uh, They didn't want to have a passing word on the street, as it were. They wanted a a more private, a more drawn out conversation. And so what they desired was an invitation to join Jesus in his place of lodging. What they're seeking is now beginning to come into view. Jesus asks, "What, what are you seeking? Well, we would like to talk to you more. They wanted to know more of what John the Baptist had spoken of. And Jesus was happy to oblige. He says, come and you will see." Again, think about how we started talking about what does it mean to see. Come and you will see. And so they went and they saw where Jesus was staying. And we read in verse 39 that they stayed with him that day, for it was the tenth hour. Now, this brings up another question what is meant by the tenth hour? For one, we should understand that John is writing to a Gentile audience. And so we may wonder, what system of time was John using? Was John reckoning time according to the Roman system, which begins at midnight, like our own system? Or was he using the Jewish system, which began began at sunrise? If the Roman system is used, then this would have been 10 o'clock in the morning. If the Jewish system is being used, then this was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's not clear from the context Although John does use the Jewish system later on, chapter 19, where he refers to the sixth hour on the eve of the Passover. And so if he's, if he's consistent throughout his gospel, it would seem that this is four o'clock in the afternoon, and that the disciples then spent the rest of the day, and even into the evening, with Jesus. Now, this, this, the time of day is, is really a minor point. The major point is this. These disciples wanted to spend as much time as they could with Jesus. They wanted to learn from Him. They wanted to know Him. They wanted to go to where He was and spend time with Him. And so John is indicating to us that this is exactly what they did. They they went, whatever time of day it was, they went and spent an extended period of time learning from Jesus. Now one of these two disciples who visited Jesus in His lodging was a man named Andrew. Uh, It tells us, Andrew is introduced in verse 40 as the brother of Simon Peter. That's how he's introduced. This is Simon Peter's brother. Now, this is because Peter is, the, is would have been the better known brother by the time this gospel is written. Everybody knows who Peter is. Andrew, I mean, you have to think about. Wait a minute, who's Andrew again? Oh yeah, he's the one that invites people. See Simon Peter's Now notice that once Andrew began to follow Jesus, what is the first thing he does? He bears witness. He went and found his brother, Simon, and tells him, we have found the Messiah. And John, again, helping his Gentile audience, explains the terminology Messiah means Christ. Now, of course, we have to further translate that into English. Andrew had found the Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel. And so the very first thing that he does in response to this discovery was to tell someone else about Jesus. Namely, he tells his own brother. When one finds the truth, when one finds hope for life, why would he or she not share it with great joy? Why why wouldn't we want to tell everybody about Jesus who saved us from our sins? Andrew did what you and I should do as well as believers in Jesus Christ. Andrew brought others to Jesus. Now, we don't know a lot about Andrew, do we? He's not part of the inner circle of disciples. He doesn't speak very much. He doesn't draw attention to himself. The one thing we know about Andrew is that he brings people to Jesus. He told Simon Peter, that they had found the promised Messiah. Now, Messiah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which which means the anointed one. The anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, anointing was often given to the king or to priests. And being anointed, the king or priest was being consecrated, he was being set apart for their special task. Jesus... He is the anointed one par excellence. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king of Israel. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king of Israel. In fact, he's the only one who holds that threefold office. Now, Andrew perhaps doesn't understand all of this at this point, but... He did perhaps see the royal and and, and priestly functions of this promised Messiah. After all, it was John the Baptist's words when he said, Look, the Lamb of God, which is what caused Andrew to first start following Jesus. Now, what Andrew understood in full is not known, but what he did know is that God had promised one who would come. And now he believes he's come. And so here he is. He wants Simon. He wants his brother to know him too. You need to know this guy. This Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the scriptures have spoken of. And so, verse forty-two it says that he brought him to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus. Now, when Simon comes and he comes before Jesus, and, and you kind of see the the scene here a little bit, Jesus looks at Simon. He he sort of. Uh, Sizes him up. He, he looks him over. <coughs> and he says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And again, uh, John provides the trans, translation uh, of, uh, of the uh, Aramaic word, which means rock. He says, "You're Simon, son of John. You're going to be called Rock." So he, Jesus looks Simon over and proceeds to call him Rock. And and yet, notice at this point, Simon hasn't said or done anything. He hasn't done anything. In fact, standing before Jesus was impulsive Simon, and we're going to see a lot of this in the gospel narrative. Simon was a man who was quick to put his foot in his mouth. I can relate to Simon. He was rash. He may have even been a little bit arrogant at times. This is is who's standing before Jesus. But when Jesus looked at Simon, who he saw was Peter, who will, by God's grace, become a rock of a man. By faith... Simon will become Peter. He will be a rock. Now this new name will be given again later. Uh, It's recorded in Matthew chapter 16 when Simon Peter professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus uh, again calls him Cephas. And so Jesus is speaking prophetically concerning Simon Peter, seeing what he will be. After this, then, the next day, we read in verse 43, literally it's, he desired to go to the Gentiles. Now, in the Greek, unlike some of our English translations, the he is not specified. The ESV specifies it as Jesus desired to go uh, to Galilee. But in the Greek, it's actually not specified. And so, it's actually not clear that it's Jesus who desired to go to the Gentiles. Now, the New American Standard does a better job in translating this uh, more ambiguously, they they put it this way. The next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, "Follow me." Now, this may seem like a minor point because you know what I'm trying to trying to show you is that that if you're using the ESV, I'm not sure that that's actually as accurate as it should be. But it's possible that the he being referred to is not Jesus, but actually Andrew. That Andrew is the one who proposed that they go to Galilee. And if this is the case, then Andrew desired to go to Galilee so that he could find Philip and bring him to Jesus. And then we will read that Philip will go and find Nathaniel. Now this is important because we can note that John the Evangelist is stressing the importance of bearing witness. This is one of the themes here. John the Baptist had borne witness of Jesus. Andrew then bore witness bringing Simon Peter and Philip to Jesus. And then Philip will bear witness to Nathaniel, And on and on it goes. And so if it is Andrew who finds Philip, then there are no exceptions to disciples bringing others to Jesus. Historically, one commentator said, Quote, Jesus does not, at this time, call any of his, these fledgling disciples, as he later does, according to the accounts of the Synoptic Gospels. End quote. In other words, that Andrew is the he that wanted to go to Galilee fits the pattern which is seen in the other Gospels. And so, you know, it's, it's possible that it was Jesus who desired to go to Galilee, and that it's actually correct, but again, the, the Greek is, is ambiguous, it actually seems to fit the pattern that it would actually the he the antecedent to he is Andrew, and so leaving from the place where John the Baptist was ministering, they went to Galilee and found Philip, and he was told by Jesus to follow him. Now Philip, we read, was from Bethsaida, which means literally means house of fishing. The house of fishing. Now, this is the hometown of Andrew and Peter. This is fishing town. And these men of fishing town will be made by Christ to be fishers of men. But his new disciple, Philip, then went out as well. And he found Nathaniel. And again, notice the progression from one new disciple to the next, bearing witness. And he found him, and then he says, verse 45 We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, you can can almost feel Philip's enthusiasm. We we found him. This is the one that Moses had spoken of. We have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one of Israel. The one who was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets. And who is this person, Philip? Oh, it's Jesus. He's the son of Joseph. He's from Nazareth. Now, the progression is obscured, again, in our translations. But in the original Greek, the first thing Nathanael hears is of the Messiah. We've found the Messiah. And then the last word in the sentence is Nazareth. So the first thing he hears is Messiah. The last thing he hears is Nazareth. Messiah, Nazareth. These two things don't go together. Right? You see the problem. Or maybe you don't see the problem, but in, in for Nathanael, these two things, the first thing and the last thing in the sentence, they don't go together. They're, these are contradictory. One should not have anything to do with the other. Now, Nathanael, according to chapter 21, was from Cana of Galilee. We'll see a wedding in that place in chapter 2. And as the people of Judea uh, despise the people of Galilee... So those from Nazareth were despised by their fellow Galileans. It's like this. You know, we might be backwater hicks, but at least we're not as, we're not as backwater hicks as those Nazareans. They're really out there. We, we actually see, see this in, uh, in Uganda. You know, the, the people in Uganda, they, they sort of despise the people of Karamajan. Well, th- those people, they're, they're fellow Ugandans, but they're really, really backwards. You get the point. Maybe we understand it here, you know. People in the Ozarks. Well, there's those who are, you know, country folk. And then there's really, you know, Hickseed folk, right? Backwater folk. And so, how did, so, you understand, so this, is, this is Nathaniel's mindset, right? You understand his mindset. <coughs> and so he says in verse 46... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth, really? I mean, what good could possibly come out of that place? Can a Messiah possibly come from there? I mean, that is utterly absurd. Nathaniel's scornful question reflects more than just village rivalry, though. Neither Moses nor the prophets had written anything which would even as much as hint the Messiah would come from Nazareth. No one would ever think to look to such a backward, hickseed place as Nazareth. Philip, though, gives the only satisfactory answer possible. Look at what he says. Come and see. Come and see. You don't believe me, Nathaniel? You don't think that, this, that Jesus is the fulfill, fulfillment of all that Moses had written of and the prophets had predicted? No, that's all right. Come and see for yourself. Sometimes when we evangelize, when we bear witness to Christ, it's not the complex and deeply theological presentations which will win the day. Sometimes it's a simple statement of come and see for yourself. Now, this doesn't mean we don't care about theology. Far far from that. Rather, by pointing people to the Scriptures, to the claims of Christ, the Scriptures are able to speak for themselves. God can speak for Himself. It is God's Spirit which transforms the hearts of men. Sometimes the answer is, come and see. Now, Nathaniel obviously goes with Philip, and he saw Jesus... And when Jesus saw him coming, in fact, Jesus says this, excuse me, he says this within Nathanael's earshot, in verse 47, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. So here's Nathanael coming, and this is what's said about him, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I want to, to focus up for a moment on Jesus' use of the term deceit. This is a word which in Greek is used of bait, like fishing bait. This is fitting for the location among fishermen. Nathanael is being described as a particular kind of Israelite. One in whom there is no guile. An Israelite who does not have duplicitous motives. What What a description of his character Blessed is the man, Psalm 32 says, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, Nathaniel may have been critical of Jesus coming from Nazareth. Thank you. He may have been critical of Jesus coming from Nazareth, but he was willing to examine for himself the claims that were being made about him. An Israelite without deceit. By the way, this brings to mind the story of Jacob, doesn't it? This becomes actually more clear later. Uh, Jacob, you'll recall from Genesis, used deceit to steal Esau's uh, blessing and birthright. And Esau will later say of Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, Is he not rightly named Jacob? He has cheated me twice, taking my birthright and now my blessing. Now, Jacob, though, is renamed Israel when his character is transformed by God. Nathanael was an Israelite transformed like Israel, not like Jacob the deceiver. Nathanael demonstrates his character in wondering, how such a short short acquaintance, such a statement could be made about him. And so he asks, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now the fig tree was a sign of peace for an Israelite. To, to sit under one's fig tree or, or under one's vine in, in your vineyard was to was to live at peace. Oh, what a tranquil place that would be to sit, isn't it? Uh, Here is a shady place to relax and to contemplate the things of the Lord. Undisturbed, without a care in the world, to live at peace under the fig tree. Uh, perhaps what caught Nathaniel's attention is not that Jesus knew that he was under the fig tree, but that the Lord was able to read his very thoughts. Whatever the case may be, Nathanael is deeply moved by the words of Jesus. And so he responds. Look at his response. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathanael had been honestly looking For reasons to believe or not to believe. And here, he believes. But Jesus' special knowledge of him, his thoughts, his place, caused Nathanael's doubts to be instantly removed. Now recall again how Philip had introduced Jesus to Nathanael. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now Nathanael's a good Israelite. He had been looking for the coming of the Messiah. He had been praying for the promised one to come. And perhaps perhaps this is what he was doing under the fig tree. He was praying for the coming of the anointed one, the promised one for Israel. Understanding now that Philip's words were true, he addresses him as rabbi, just as the others before him. And then he acknowledges him as the son of God and the king of Israel. Here, Nathanael is testifying to Jesus being the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the one that, J- that Moses and the prophets indeed had spoken of, the one he himself had been waiting for as well. Now, one we can almost imagine a smile come upon Jesus' face as he responds to Nathanael's declaration. Was that really all it took, Nathanael? Look at verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Here Jesus makes an allusion then to the well-known story of Jacob and the vision he had at Bethel where angels were ascending and descending the stairs. It was here that we see the transformation of Jacob. This is the place where the Lord promised him that he would always be with him. And Jesus is saying here in John to Nathanael, you too will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, what Jacob saw in type and in shadow, Nathanael will witness in substance the connection between heaven and earth. The one whose sacrifice will satisfy divine justice and reconcile God in men. You will see this connection. Greater things than simply having seen him under the fig tree. Greater things will be apprehended by Nathaniel. but already he had already caught a glimpse of the Lord's penetrating knowledge. He will see that the Lord is both the Son of God and the Son of Man who has come to reconcile His people. That that Jesus is the true ladder. He will truly understand the confession. Indeed, Jesus is the King of Israel. Sometimes we might think, that our faith would be a lot easier if we could just see this stuff for ourselves, right? We read the scriptures, and we think, you know, it would be a lot easier if I could just see this stuff happen, right? To see Jesus, to see the miracles, to touch the risen Lord. Perhaps perhaps we appreciate Thomas a little bit more, right? Sometimes we're hard on Thomas. He's doubting Thomas. But maybe we're a lot like Thomas, aren't we? Remember, Thomas would not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he could see them with his own eyes and touch them with his own hands. You know, we're like that often, aren't we? But is seeing with our own physical eyes what it really takes to believe? Many unbelievers think so. Those who are committed to unbelief and their own autonomy are unable to believe unless they can see. And then, you know, even if they could see, they still don't believe. What the disciples saw was Jesus for, for who He really was. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God, who is God incarnate. The second person of the Trinity. The Son of Man, the one who bridges the gap between a holy God and sinful men. They met the King of Israel, the true and promised King, who would reign forever and ever. Did they, did they see all this with their physical eyes? Was this seen with their physical eyes? Certainly, they saw Jesus as a man. But these other aspects? They saw them with eyes of faith. And even then, they did not fully comprehend what the Spirit had revealed to them. Nevertheless, they had eyes of faith. As Christians, we have eyes of faith To This beloved congregation is a gift from God, isn't it? Faith is a gift. The Spirit of God has testified to our spirit that Jesus is Lord. You have been enabled to trust and rest in Christ because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in you. This beloved Christian should inform your evangelism. It also should give you great comfort, shouldn't it? You and I, like Andrew or Philip or John or any of the other disciples, can bear witness to Christ with great boldness knowing that we are not the ones who change their hearts. We invite them in simple terms, come and see. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. We saw that in the Psalms. See that God became man taking on flesh, that God himself has bridged the great chasm between us and the holy God. See the one who died that we may live. The one who rose again victorious over sin and death. See the king of kings who will one day return in glory and will rule over the new heavens and new earth. See the one who gives hope and comfort. And rest, see, beloved congregation, see Jesus. Not with physical eyes, see Jesus with eyes of faith. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we may understand spiritual things that we would love spiritual things help us to see Jesus every day and in our in our weak moments we pray that you would draw us ever so closer to you help us to find our rest for we are indeed weary help us to find a rest and the great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, as we bear witness, as we have opportunity to have gospel conversations, may we be able to, in, in simple terms, be able to invite people to come and see. And may these people we speak with, may they truly see with eyes of faith. We thank you, O oh God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.